Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. For those who are at Laodicea and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And Lord, we do ask you that you would help us now as we navigate this, this passage. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So just kind of reviewing last week, um, if we can go to the next slide. Last week, we learned that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He, he includes in his greeting that he, he sends greetings from their brother Timothy. Paul and Timothy, uh, Paul was the Apostle. Timothy was the young disciple that was growing up, that Paul was training. I believe at the end of Paul's life, Paul uh, sort of passed the baton to Timothy to, to continue um, the, the pastoral ministry and oversight of, of the early church. He was writing to this location in Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey. 
So as we look at this map, ignore the rectangle up high here. You see the boot. The boot is Italy. Right here you have Rome. This is where Paul wrote this letter from. He was imprisoned uh, under house arrest. He wrote four epistles during this time known as the prison epistles. You have Ephesians, Colossians, which kind of pair each other. Colossians goes with Philemon. Philemon is a short letter, probably 23 or 30 verses. I forget exactly how many it is. But, but Philemon was, was a man who was, a, he, basically the church met at his house. He had a slave. The slave Onesimus basically escaped, stole, stole a bunch of stuff from him, ran away. Onesimus encounters Paul in Rome, becomes a Christian, and Paul says, in your coming to faith, you can't run from the past. You've got to square with the past. You need to go back to Philemon and set the record straight. And so Paul sends Colossians and the letter of Philemon with Onesimus and Tychicus all the way, uh, about a thousand miles over here. This is modern day Greece. Then you come to modern day Turkey. One letter went to Ephesus, which we have as Ephesians, a hundred miles to the east is a town of Colossae. Colossae was a small town in relation to the two other towns that are mentioned in Colossians. We have Laodicea, and we have some H sound, her something or other. I've, I lost it. Heriopolis or something? Heriopolis. So those, those two towns were very large, and, and Colossae sat in the shadow of those two towns. Now, Paul had never been to Colossians, but another person that Paul had led to the Lord was... This man, Epaphras, who we were introduced to in verse 7. Epaphras was the, the church planner, the man who started and established the church in Colossians. He was doing a good work. Things were going well. He was encouraged by the people in their walk with the Lord. But there was a problem kind of coming into the church that he didn't quite know how to handle. And so he made the journey to Rome to go speak with Paul to explain the problem, which is Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the word gnosko, which means to know something, knowledge. And the Gnostics taught that if you really wanted to know God, you had to go to them. And there were a series of secrets and codes and passwords. And only a few select people could understand the truth about who God was. And one of their primary teachings is that God being holy couldn't truly have created the earth or people or humanity because Anything that you can see and touch was sinful and evil. And that bled into who Jesus is. And so they said, well, Jesus can't be God because he was human in the flesh. He was a stepping stone, they would say. He was, he was a, a, a stone that would lead you to deity. But you had to get to them. And so Paul writes this letter to sort of combat these issues. He opens up with his prayer uh, or giving thanks to them really in about verse, I think it's three by verse nine. He has this prayer for them and his prayers that they would come to know God's will, that they would walk in a manner worthy in this unfolding of this prayer that we prayed earlier. At the very end of this prayer in verses 12 and 13 and 14, right before we pick up where we pick up our text, we have to see this in context so he's joyously giving thanks to the Father, which just feels good to say. I made you guys say it a bunch of times last week. Joyously giving thanks to the Father. And if the three things that he joyously gave thanks to the Father for were first, is that the Father has qualified us 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The second thing is that he, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And that in him we have redemption through Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And as he speaks of Christ, in verse 15, there's this explosion of, of Christ, what's theologically termed as Christology. In all of the New Testament, this section is the, the loftiest, most clearest picture of who Christ is. And within this section, there's a number of problems. And the problems aren't from the text itself. The problems are from groups that have come up over the centuries that have taken verses and made them say things that aren't correct within context. And I don't normally like to talk about other theological groups. I often speak of Catholicism, not necessarily as an attack against Catholicism, because just because Catholicism is my spiritual background. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I love Catholics. And so a lot of my bearings all come to Scripture and, and I know what I was taught in the Catholic Church, and then there's sort of this, this disconnect from Scripture. So it's, when I bring up Catholics, it's normally in love. It's not really nor, normally like an attack against them per se at all. But in this passage, it's Jehovah's Witnesses. I get there. They're, they come to, they've already come to our new house and knocked on the door, and I wasn't there. I think God does that a lot so that they encounter Anna and not me because she's far more gracious than I am. Normally just because I'm busy, and i just like, let's just go to the jugular vein and... and uh, but there's a main passage that we have to kind of work through. There's, there's three sections that we kind of have to work through to figure out, well, what's the truth? What is the scripture saying? My goal is never to win an argument. My goal is to establish what is the truth? What's right? It's not about me. It's what does the scripture say? This is the authority. And so as he picks up verse 15, we encounter this, I don't want to say problem, but, but it's, there's a difficulty here, especially when you take this verse in isolation. It says that he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First part's not that hard, the image. He is the image of God. In John 1.18, as John opens up his gospel, kind of starting from creation past, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It, he goes all the way to John 1.18, which says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, speaking of Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, has explained him, has exegeted him, is the actual word, that, that in Christ, when we look at Christ, humans, we are limited in what we're able to take on with seeing God. But God wants to reveal himself, and as Christ came, it, he is God, and he's the perfect image of what God is and manifest us as we look at Christ's life, as we watch him, as we see him in the pages of the New Testament, we come to understand who God is through his life. He goes on to say, which is where the, the issues or the where the Jehovah's Witnesses will take this and, and what they say here. And it's understand. I see how they go there. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this term firstborn, how do we understand it? What, what's the meaning of firstborn? Now, on one side of the coin, the most common usage of the word firstborn has to do with birth order. The firstborn son had, had a certain amount of preference, especially when it came to inheritance. Normally, he got a double portion of the inheritance. He had more authority to carry on the name. So when we come to this passage with the Jehovah's Witnesses will reason, saying that Jesus isn't God, 
he's an image of God, but really he was the first created being of what God made. And he sort of ascended because look what it says right here. It says that he's the firstborn of all creation. So when God the Father created everything, the first thing that he made was Christ. And that's a problem from Scripture. And it, and it concerns me when we come, one of my favorite, well, that's not my favorite holiday. I say I have a lot of favorite holidays. I really like Christmas. I probably prefer Thanksgiving because I think Thanksgiving embodies Christianity, the, the, the essence of what we are. But, but, you know, I just like a little Elvis and Blue Christmas. Like, I like the feeling of Christmas. I like that it lingers for like four months. And it just, you know, I enjoy it. But with Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, it's so easy for us to think, that when I was born, when our next child is born, that that's the beginning of our creation, that that's the start of our existence. And so Christ, as he came, when he born, is, is this what this passage is saying? Now, there's another option for firstborn. It relates to authority. The clearest usage of this example is found in Psalm 89, 27. God is speaking towards King David. And he says this, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so here when he's talking, looking at kings over humanity, that King David doesn't mean he was necessarily the first king, but firstborn, that he has authority or preeminence over all the other kings. And how do we determine what this is? The, the, the linchpin in this verse is the word of, and of is a terribly slippery word. I heard an example in my study this week that I thought was the clearest kind of explanation of how this word of is so slippery. Pulpit of wood means this pulpit is wood. Teacher of class. Teacher is not class. Teacher is over the class that they're teaching. Is that clear? Now, the problem here is this verse is taken by itself in isolation. And if we only look at this verse in isolation, there's no way we can determine the usage of this word of. We, we just simply can't. It's flipping a coin. But the number one rule of Bible study is just like real estate. Number one rule of real estate, location, location, location. Number one rule of Bible study, context, context, context. You can't take any verse in isolation. And I probably get in more trouble with time in my preaching because when I kind of flip the coin over where to break up the passage, I'll often bite a bigger chunk because it guards my being able to isolate on just one verse, because if you just take one or two, three verses, you can really make it say whatever you want to say. But as you open up the passage, you're constrained in what you can say because you have to look at the whole context. And so in order to figure out what this of means, we have to go to verse 16, 17. See if that unveils anything to our understanding of the word of. Now in 16. I want you to notice the hymns. Hymns all refer to Jesus, not hymns that you sing, but H-I-M, the hymns. For by him, all things were created. 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities. So the first hymn that we see is, for by him, for by Jesus, all things were created. Okay, if all things are created by him, is he a part of creation? So far, it's looking like he's outside of creation because if he's the one doing the creating, it says all things. Well, well, maybe that was all things after he was created. Well, then Paul goes both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. So whether it's in heaven, whether it's on earth, he, all things were made by him. Whether it's things that you can see or not see, he made those too. Whether they're authorities, rulers, kings, all of those too, all of them. All things have been created not only by him, through him, and for him. He goes on to say, verse 17, For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he's before all things. So I look at this, like when I see this, he is, it reminds me of John eight fifty eight, And they start asking him a question, and he answered them in eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. What? He offended a lot of people. Abraham existed some like, I don't know, 1,500 years, 2,000 years, 3,000, like however many years. I didn't really do the math. But long before Jesus came on scene. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I existed always in eternity past. This I am phrase we see with Moses wandering through the desert and that, that burning bush that wasn't being consumed. Kick off your sandals, Moses, where your stand is on holy ground. <laughs> Kicks off his sandals, looking at this burning bush. He's given a bunch of instructions. He's like, who, who should I say is uh, sending me? The burning bush that's not being consumed? Say, I am. The one who existed always. I don't know if it says that here, but this is what my brain jumped to. He is before all things. Like all things, he is before the beginning. And in him, all things hold together. See, I love this when, when scripture, like when we see science and scripture, like science is telling us that something's kind of holding all things together. But the second law of thermodynamics, that all things are moving to disorder, is that they're like slowly spreading apart. But everything that he's holding everything together, that our breath, our life, everything that we have, it's because of what he's He's holding together for us. On Monday, Casey's like, you know, she is like, I love Casey. Because she's so like, she does so much stuff so that I don't have to do it. Like, I just love, like, so VBS, she's like just running with the whole thing. And her grandfather, uh, you know, remember, it's neat to see him because Grandma Kathy died Christmas Day. And so he's like, kind of like, oh, I want to come and build the stuff. Casey's like, hey, Gunner, I need you to go pick up this stuff. It's like, I, I'm sure it's used for construction, but I've only, like, in, for real construction, but I've only seen it used as VBS to make these big poster boards. It's like inch sort of foamy stuff. Four by eight planks. She's like, I need 10 of them. I've been in Valley of the Center long enough. I really should get a pickup truck one of these days. But, but to, I got a minivan. Minivan, you can f- make anything work. I'm out there with the measurements. I'm like, 10 inches, it should work. But to be safe, I start with buying five just to see if I can get them in there. There was no getting them up to the inside. And then this helpful guy from Home Depot comes up. He's like, 
we can make this work. Where are you going? You going close? I'm like, yeah, just to Valley Center. He's like, we'll make sure it's super safe. And I'm like, do you think we can fit five more? It would save me a whole like another trip down here. He's like, we can make 10 work, no problem. I'm like, you stay here, I'll go back. So I get these 10 cardboard things. We stack them onto the minivan. It looks so goofy. Somebody probably took a picture and I'm going to be, I'm going to end up on some spam email, like something funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we get these 10 things on and he gets the twine. I'm thinking I'm just going to take one piece of twine and a second piece of twine. But he like ran the show. And this thing was like, there were knots everywhere. There was twine going like every which way. He taped it all together. He put cardboard in places in order to like, not damage the foam it took us like 30 or 40 minutes and i halfway think he was trying to get out of other work because people say hey we need help moving heavy stuff he's like no no this is going to take me a long time and i'm like i'm like okay i got the point i'm like we can move on i got to get out of my day but man this i should have taken a picture but by the end he's like this cardboard is not go or this foam is not going anywhere He's like, you can do 80 going to Valley Center. It won't break. It's not, I guarantee it. I'm like, sweet. He'd so tied it down that you, there was no wiggle room with anything. Paul's doing the same thing here with Jesus. Like by him, through him, in him, he is in him. All of this stuff, he, he made all creation. It's made through him, by him, for him. He holds all things together. By the time Paul is done describing who Jesus is. There is absolutely no wiggle room for any play for the Gnostics to come in and say, Jesus was really just created. The Bible is absolutely clear on who Jesus is. There is no way around denying that the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus is absolutely God. There's just no, there's no way around it. Now, the ultimate issue is what have you done with Jesus? Just because you deny that he's God doesn't, doesn't change anything. I can deny that there's gravity all day long, but if I go up to the roof and jump off, saying it, it doesn't exist, I'm just going to walk off and I'll be fine. You guys will all be visiting me in Palomar with my two broken legs, probably broken hip and all kinds of stuff. So the Bible makes it absolutely clear that he is God. He goes on to say in verse 18, from, from looking at all creation, how does Jesus fit into all creation? Well, he's above it. He's over it. He's preeminent. He has authority over everything, not just on earth, but in the heavens, the stars, things we can't see everywhere. Now, in verse 18, Paul shifts to the church within the sphere of the church, the local body. He says he is also head of the body, the church. And Jesus is the all in all over the church. If the church gets off track and loses Jesus's preeminence in the church, the church gets in trouble. The church doesn't exist for social reasons. It doesn't exist to please the world around us. We exist to worship Jesus Christ alone, to obey him, to follow after him. Now that may lead into social aspects. But there's dangers. If we get off course, Jesus is the head. And in Paul's other letter, which at the end of Colossians, he tells him to read likely Ephesians. When you look at Ephesians, the head of Christ over the church is expounded upon 
so clearly there. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. We see this phrase again. How is it used? We're going to have to back up. We know that there's two uses of this word firstborn, as in uh, birth order, authority in one's family. There's also firstborn as authority overall. It says he's firstborn from the dead. It seems kind of strange. It means Jesus rules over death because he conquered it. We're getting back to the historical event of the gospel. That Jesus was crucified according to scriptures for your sins, my sins, our sins. That he was buried. And on the third day he rose again. He walked the earth for another 40 days. Many people saw him according to 1 Corinthians 15. As many as uh, 600 men. There could have been more including the families that would have been there. He walked, they touched him. He then ascended into heaven. He conquered death. Therefore, he's the firstborn, the authority over death. Death no longer reigns because he conquered it. So that he himself, this is sort of an emphatic usage. It it, it could just say that he will come to have first place in anything. But in the Greek, it's like this double usage. This isn't a typo in your Bibles. It's like that he himself will have first place in everything. Does it get any clearer than that? Jesus is Lord over all. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The Gnostics again. Jesus can't be God. He was human flesh. You could touch him. All flesh is evil. Therefore, he can't be God. Paul, his attack against Gnosticism to help the church in their battle of their brain that they would rightly understand to know who Jesus was. The Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Fully God, fully man. Our finite brains can't even partway comprehend that, but the Word makes it clear. And the evidence supporting it is overwhelming. And if you're here and you have, well, I'll get there. I can get ahead of myself. For all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say whether things on earth or things on heaven. So Jesus has reconciled all things. Now what's reconciliation? What's to reconcile? When I was 16, or no, when I was like 25, before I got married, I never reconciled a checkbook. It was like I always knew that there was like this pool of cash in the bank account because the Navy paid me the first and the 15th, whether I deserved it or not. Money just was there, and I could spend less of it. If I ran over, there was credit cards. I was kind of like not exactly the most financially astute person. It worked for me then at the time. Then I got married. But since marriage, I've become meticulous. Like, like my, my numbers thing has just blossomed after marriage. I love keeping a checkbook. I'm meticulous about it. I told Anna that. I'm like, yeah. She's like, you're, you're, like, you're not trying to be meticulous. You are meticulous. I have like paper accounting. I have computer program accounting. I have it all figured out. I love it. 
But you know, and almost daily, like part of my daily routine, I log into my bank account. I look at all my systems and I run the math of like outstanding items that are supposed to clear. If everything's clear, does, does, does my, what the bank say, says I have money in the account, does it align with all of my accounting? And with as meticulous as I am, I still run into problems. Like every so often, the bank will say I have more money than my paper shows, or it says the worst one, I have less money than I actually think I have. And so then that turns me into like a, a forensic reconciling person. Like, is there anything outstanding? What is it? And sometimes I can't solve it. And I'll be off by like $5.36. And where did it go? Or how did I get this $5.36? Burger. <laughs> I wish a burger at Five Guys was $5.36. And I'll reach a point where I have to reconcile these two. I don't call the bank and say, you guys are off. Put more money in my account because my little uh, memo pad here says, I have this much money, so you guys need to fill up the thing to square my account. Uh Uh-uh. I square my little piece of paper with what the bank says because the bank is right. It's what exists. And we're told that Jesus reconciled all things to him. Now, what does this mean? Well, Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When it comes to humanity, you as an individual standing before a God, your account is way short. You're bankrupt. Now, what this verse is not saying is another another issue of universalism, which says, the belief system that at the end of the day, because of this verse, that all humanity will just be saved. It doesn't really matter. All people are going to heaven. And that's not what it's saying. A clear example is in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. As Peter writes, the whole chapter of 2 is... It kind of unpacks the first verse, but the first verse is powerful. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So there will be false teachers. These are not people who have trusted in Christ. These are not believers. These are people who haven't even acknowledged any sort of even in in a duplicity that they were you know trying to pretend like they were believers that they've accepted christ they've come in like the gnostics and they start telling these teachings that are heresy that are against god's will and it says that these people denying the master that's christ who bought them this is a difficult passage because it's saying for some, not, it's not difficult for me, that Jesus on the cross, when he paid the penalty for sin, it was for everybody. All, all sin, from the beginning of time to the end of time, on the cross, it was nailed to him. He bore the sin of the world. It doesn't make it effectual just because if you haven't trusted in Christ, it doesn't make it effectual. That verse in Second Peter, it continues bringing swift destruction on themselves. These guys are not going to be saved at the end. Destruction comes in the rest of Second Peter chapter 2. It continues to unpack this. 
So the ultimate issue is what have you done with Jesus? Like I asked before. He bought you. He reconciled your sin already. And at the end of the day, when we stand before God, we're not giving an account for our sin. We're giving an account with what did we do with Christ? Did you reject him? Are you his enemy? Being neutral is being his enemy. And maybe you're struggling with, is this true? Like Paul already had thanked him. And I think it's chapter one, verse 13. No, it was before. I don't know. It's somewhere in there. Maybe it was verse five, four and five. When he speaks of that, when he applauds him, he talks about their faith, their love and their hope. These three words that continually come up in, in the scriptures. And their faith, looking to the past, their faith, what what they could put their whole weight upon, the trust issue, was looking back to Christ's work on the cross. And it takes faith. It was a struggle for me. That's why I go out of my way to make sure that we have Case for Christ available for free in the lobby so that anybody can take them. You might be a believer, but you have a friend. Take them and give to them because Lee Strobel, here he is, this guy who was against Christianity. His wife had become a believer. He was a courtroom reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and his goal was to disprove Christianity so that his wife would have to depart from the faith and they could maintain their normal lifestyle. And he did not do light work. He flew all across the country. Maybe, I think he even made a couple of trips across the pond to England, to, to meet with leading scholars on both sides of the issue. And he examined the evidence. At the end of the day, he was forced into a corner because the evidence supporting the historical death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was overwhelming to him. And now he's a pastor. And if you read the book, it doesn't mean you're going to end up being a pastor. But I love it that it's this intellectual man that went through serious study, presents the evidence, and it may answer some of your questions so that at the end of the day, you could trust in Christ as Savior. Verse 21 through 23, he continues. He's talking about this reconciliation. He's going to get personal into their lives. And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I understand that as Paul wrote this, he's writing to believers, those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. It applies to them. My dilemma is here into this room. Maybe this doesn't apply to everybody. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, maybe you're still there. Maybe you haven't come to know Christ as Savior. Like you're not just born Christian. At one point, all of us were against him. We were not in Christ. And so then the question is, how do, if you're, if you're not with Christ now, how do you get to be where you, what Paul mentions here can be you? Formally, although you were formally alienated, meaning that now you're not alienated and hostile, meaning that you're not hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. How, how do we how do we turn that into past tense? Well, in Ephesians chapter one, the complimentary letter that I believe that Paul wanted them to read 
113, he says, after hearing the gospel that, that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again, according to scriptures, for your sins. After hearing it, at some point, you believed. And then when you believed, you were sealed in the spirit and made a child of God. Belief is the linchpin. Having faith, placing your faith in Christ. And then in verse 23, he says, if. Now, this if, in the English, we only have one use of the word if. In the Greek, there's like five different ways to translate if. So it doesn't matter. Very rarely, when, there, when we come to the if in the Greek, most, most of the time, it just gets translated into if. But on one, one extreme is the first class condition of the usage of if in the Greek. And that means if and you are, or sometimes it's translated since. It's a positive condition all the way to the, the very other extreme, which says if and you will never be, and you're not, and you're totally like, uh, you're, you're not going there. Where in the middle case is more like our if, if, sort of like a conditional clause, like if you do this, then this, and if you don't, this will happen. This one's a first-class condition. This isn't an if, like, like if you might. He's speaking to believers. If and you are, indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Last week we looked at this word steadfast. I love this word. Patiently enduring difficulties that you're patient in the midst of this. And your hope in Christ, your hope in the gospel is what gives the stability. Not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And as Paul kind of concludes this section with, and I became a minister, he's going he's gonna to dovetail into his sort of testimony, his calling in the local church, and we're going to learn a little about Paul. He begins with, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is problem number three. How is he filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? This is where I go to my roots of Catholicism. Because I was made to understand that Christ's suffering on the cross was not sufficient. And this was a, a passage that would explain it. So that when we took communion in the Catholic Church, which I did at like six years old for my first communion, I was always taught in a, this word, transubstantiation. I can't even say it, transubstantiation. Something like that. I always get the transubstay, and then I kind of like stand and I fall away normally cough or something. But that's the believing that when you take communion, that somewhere in the process, the cracker and the wine literally become Jesus's body and flesh. That his suffering continues on the cross, that it happens every week over and over again. He goes back to the cross. Now, if that's what the scripture says, then I'm okay with it. Like, I, it, I'm, it's not about being right or wrong. It's what does the scripture say? And so I come to this passage and, it, and you read it and you go, what is Paul talking about? Is this, is this what he's trying to create? This message that, that there's a lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's a gap that needs to be filled. Like, is it possible that what the Catholic Church is teaching is correct? 
But then there's a verse in Hebrews 9.27 that, that creates, or 9.28, 9.27 is for it's appointed for man to die once and at that point to face judgment, to immediately stand before God. There's no purgatory. But Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation. This verse, to me, makes it clear that Jesus died on the cross once. It was sufficient. It was done. It was finished. But then the issue is, how do I, how do I reconcile what Paul says here? And I'm sure there's a lot of different explanations, but one that kind of resonated me with me this week, and because we're limited on time, I would sit here for three hours and talk about all of them, but... I'd have about three people, I think, left at the end of my talk because we're encroaching on lunch. If we go to Acts chapter 9, this is Paul's conversion. Remember, Paul was an antagonist of the church, not just mildly, hated the church. He was killing Christians. Acts records Paul as being the one in authority that, that killed Stephen for proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. He was on a mission to go arrest and beat as many Christians as he could because his goal was to destroy the church. And as he's on the road to Damascus, in verse chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, he encounters the Lord. We're told that this bright light, so bright that you couldn't see, appeared. In verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and he'll be told you what you must do. Now, what, this is interesting. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How was he persecuting Jesus? He was killing Christians and arresting Christians. Jesus was, had already ascended into heaven, was gone, was dead as far as Paul was concerned, or Saul at the time prior to his conversion, this Hebrew name. So his first encounter with Christ on this road to Damascus after killing Stephen, which would linger with Paul for the rest of his life, his behavior before Christ and what he did to the church, what he was became a minister of, the irony there. Jesus' first encounter is, why are you persecuting me? That when you killed Stephen, you're persecuting me. And if we turn over to Philippians... Another prison epistle in the end of chapter one, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, while he's in prison, not knowing what his fate would be, he writes to them in chapter one, verse 29, for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict, which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, I don't know if it's the correct understanding as you're turning back to Colossians chapter 1. But when I read this in Colossians, that I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As Paul is under arrest, what ultimately his history say, uh, records that his head was chopped off. Decapitation, not by guillotine, because the guillotine didn't exist. I say that a lot on accident. Paul didn't commit any crime. 
And as he was facing persecution, I believe what he's saying here is I understand my persecution. It's not because people don't like me or disagree, like they they have anything personal against me. Their hatred is aimed at Christ. And so when I'm persecuted, when I'm struck down, it's ultimately Christ's afflictions that that they're going after him. He goes on to say, verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister. And the second time it caught my attention. Verse 23, I, Paul, was made a minister. Verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister. I see the emphasis made. Like there's Paul going along with his life, happy-go-lucky, doing what he does. And then he was forced into the ministry. I didn't choose to be a pastor. I was resisting being a pastor. I've heard many pastors that have been pastors for a long time. Alistair Begg often says, when young men come to him and say, hey, I'm interested in being a pastor. He's like, don't do it. Walk away. Go, go work for UPS. Go do whatever it is that you want to do. Don't. And if you can't not do it, then do it. And he's made this minister and it's just, he's in prison. He's going, but he's been called by God to do this. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, for them, not for his benefit. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God everywhere Paul went, he proclaimed the gospel to everyone. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past and ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Saint Hagias, the holy ones, set apart those who are in Christ, not special select people. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's beautiful. This is the hope of the gospel, the hope of glory. Paul doesn't care what it's going to cost him. He's going to proclaim that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again. He did it for all of us. Because of his great love, he goes on. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're incomplete. You're incomplete. And this is what causes so much in our, in our culture with people just trying to discover themselves and find out who they are. Before I had Christ in my life, I was just as empty. Came from an abused home. Things were kind of going rough. I thought my answer, I'd join the Navy. Go be a Navy SEAL. Then when I became a Navy SEAL, certainly I would feel completeness. And even now, it's been, I don't know, 20 years or so. But back then, and for a lot of young guys that are going through the SEAL program... The, the big thing that you just long for is to be able to wear a brown T-shirt. And it seems absolutely silly to me. Like it was, it was embarrassing to wear a white T-shirt, but then to wear a brown T-shirt was like, ooh. Now, for those of you that don't know, a brown T-shirt meant that you had made it through Hell Week. When you graduate from Hell Week, when you make it through that five days with no sleep, they hand you a brown T-shirt. And I thought, man, as soon as I get that brown t-shirt, this like emptiness inside of me, this, this feeling that, that I'm lacking something in here, when I throw on that Hanes brand new 
brown t-shirt, everything's going to change. I put on that brown t-shirt, emptiness. Emptiness. It didn't bring any sort of satisfaction. And I thought, oh, it must be the trident. The little gold medallion that they give you when you finally make it through the program. And so then I pushed and strived. And about a year later, I was awarded the trident. And when they put it on my chest, it's like, this is like a rinky dink little piece of like some sort of metal that's laden with fake gold. And it's crooked. And I'm going to get in trouble for that. And I'm still empty. And here I was by worldly standards. I'd accomplished so much. Everything that I thought to bring satisfaction, contentment, I was still incomplete in my soul. And I love that Paul's aim and my aim, I follow in his wake, is that we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man, every person, teaching every man or person, With all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. That's where ultimate contentment and that unsettling in your soul. That's where you find it is in Christ. For this purpose I labor striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Verse chapter 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Here's where we see Paul's never met these people. He's only heard about them through Epaphras. That their hearts may be encouraged. Having knit together in love. That, that they're, when they face the world, that their, hope, their, their faith in Christ, their hope in the future, their inheritance, as he mentioned in verses 4 and 5, that that would encourage them. Having been knit together, I love this, having been knit together in love. And one of the things that I love about our church here. Is that whenever like people like email me and say, "Hey, coming to church for first time is horribly terrifying," and for those of you that were raised in the church that don't ever know about like not coming to church, like you just it always is, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. I'd encourage you to do something like I don't know what I'd encourage you to do. Like I'd be careful what I'd encourage you to do. <laughs> But imagine, yeah, I've been to synagogue, like going to synagogue or, or go somewhere where Ray radical is horrifying. What do I have to wear? What do I have to act like? And I'd love that I can honestly tell people like, hey, people at this church care about the person, not the exterior. Knit together in love. We no longer see people through fleshly eyes. We see them as Christ sees them and every person that exists on the cross. Jesus had them in mind. He say, oh, how can he do that? Well, he's God. He is able to see the sin and to know the humanity that would follow because he created them or would create them. Knitted together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Understanding Paul is in the battle for the mind. The mind is so important. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Paul's going, the thing that keeps like, as I got to the end, it's like, he's like, Paul is like that guy with the twine on my car. Every which way, Jesus, 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 Christ, Christ, Christ. Every, like everywhere you go, 
If this was a line, if this was a, a land, a field of landmines, and you're trying to navigate through and not touch the word Christ, you're going to explode. It's everywhere. And by the time I got to the end of this, I thought of uh, there's Saint Pat. You know, we all know about Saint Patrick and, and Saint Patty's Day, which. Uh, but he has a, a great prayer, and in the middle of his prayer, there's a there's a verse in his prayer. And this is what it says, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. That's kind of like this, Christ everywhere. He's our all in all. He's everything. He's not a means to an end. So often people come to Jesus and think it's like the rabbit's foot that, oh, I want this. So I'll take on Christ and rub it and do a special little thing so I can get that. No, Christ is the end. And in him comes completeness. It's about Christ. And Paul is passionate here. Because in verse four, the attack he addresses. I say this so that no one will delude you. What's deluding? The issue is the Gnostics were were imposing this view that was steering them away from the truth. And Paul Paul wants to capture their minds to make it clear who Christ is so that no one will delude you, to lead you away with persuasive argument. Verse 5, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. When I look at this passage, it makes it clear that the Bible, there's no shifting, there's no way around it. Christ is preeminent over all. Our hope is in the gospel. If you write in your Bible, verse 23, highlight that circle at the hope of the gospel. Our faith looking back to the cross, that what he did on the cross, it was sufficient. What you need is Jesus. And we as a church exist to help you in that journey with your relationship with Christ. And finally, what I see here in verse 23, which I didn't make a big point about this, but it says, Indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established so that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. He, He talks about this journeying forward. He writes in Philippians, I no longer look back, but I press forward to the upward call in Christ. And if you're in Christ, it's not about the profession that you made when you were five years old. It's about where are you now? Are you still journeying onward with Christ? And in a certain sense, I'm so sick of talking about 1996, about my resisting evading arrest. I was actually 93 and my journey to the cross and the Navy SEAL turned pastor. Now, I'm not sick of it. I'll, I'll forever speak of what Christ did in my life, but there's a danger in looking backwards. That was 1996. Today, am I walking with the Lord? Am I zealous in following after him? Am I consumed by the hope of the glory to come? And for as we as Christians, our eyes need to be set forward, not backwards. And Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. I pray, Lord, for each person that's in this room. Lord, I understand that each of us are in different places. 
Some maybe still be alienated. Enemies of you. They might not realize it. And Father, I pray that as so many great preachers have prayed over the years, Lord, that those that don't know Christ, Lord, I pray that you would give them just unrest in their soul. May they grapple and strive, Lord. May you, may you so work in them, Lord, that they would be zealous to study your word, to, to seek after the evidence of who Christ is, that ultimately they would come to know Christ as Savior, that they would believe upon him. And find completeness that only comes through him. Father, we thank you that Christ is preeminent over all. Lord, we ask that you would guard our church. That you would help us to keep Christ in the center of all things. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Who believed upon him. Father, we give you thanks for the work of the cross. We thank you, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes heavenward. That we would... Stay steady in our walk with you, Lord. We ask that you would give us stability that only comes from Christ. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.